Hello, and welcome back to the Feed Grass for Good podcast, brought to you by Hustler Equipment, the world's most innovative livestock feeding equipment. Each episode, we talk with a different sustainable farmer or expert in sustainable farming. In this episode, we spoke with Bruce Wood from Loch Maria Farms in Australia. His views about what they're doing at Loch Maria Farms is really interesting, particularly since he came to farming via the oil and gas industry roughly a decade ago. I won't spoil it for you. You should really hear him talk about it first, but listen to what he says as the actual product of their operation and don't miss his thoughts on safety as well overall a very cool interview but i'll let you decide for yourself well we uh, I, I retired out of the oil and gas industry and was looking for investment opportunities and i particularly liked the idea of uh, protein i thought it had a a good uh, a good base on and you know now grass-fed protein was the next thing i came i came up in New Zealand, I've I've done it. I have a uh, I've got a uh, a long business history with New Zealand, and I travel to New Zealand still once a month for for a, a board position I have in New Zealand. It was immediately obvious to me the incredible efficiency of of New Zealand grazing, and particularly New Zealand dairy grazing. So I I, I what I looked at that. I started thinking about how I could apply that, what I could do with it, how I could get into the uh, fight for protein. The, the, it, this was 10 years ago. It was absolutely inevitable that protein was going to become more valuable. And then I started looking for opportunities. Didn't take me long to start looking at uh, lamb as the ideal market in Australia. Lamb in Australia has a lot of advantages compared to the world. It has advantages compared to New Zealand. And, and the two came together, the idea of applying New Zealand grazing techniques to the Australian lamb market. And then I found a place to apply it, which was in Southern Temperate Australia. When we pulled all that together, it took about a year to pull all that together. And we bought our first farm uh, uh, near Narracourt in South Australia on the Victorian South Australian border. It, it suited the, the application I had in mind. It had a stable rainfall. It has a grass growing pattern, very similar to Hawke's Bay in New Zealand, perhaps a little bit less in summer, but a similar grass growing pattern to Hawke's Bay. And uh, then we, uh, we added to that the, uh, the New Zealand grazing technology. We appointed a New Zealand grazing consultant to, to lead our, our grazing strategy. Seven, eight years later, we, we are, we're on our way to uh, pulling all that together and growing significantly. We have 12,000 ewes on the ground at the moment. We will double that over the next three years uh, with what we're doing. We expect to be at 25,000 ewes by 2025. And that's the history we've come through from the first looking at New Zealand dairy grazing uh, to where we are today. Agriculture is incredibly conservative. We won't do it in France. We won't do it in the UK. This, in my observation, and not being quite expert in that, the, the, the big obstacle to introducing this technique anywhere is culture. It's actually wanting to do it. It, it has not been easy to introduce this system where we have done it 
we have had an enormous amount of pseudo barriers thrown up in our way. And they're generally around the culture of people knowing why it won't work. From the, from the top up, from the top down, I have the position of company director and I've appointed a board, of, an advisory board of four people to advise me. There is uh, two business advisors and also on that board is our New Zealand grazing consultant and, I, and uh, Tom Chisholm from Ag Design, who has set this whole process up. So the four of them advise me as an advisory board. Uh, on the ground, we have a general manager who is a 10-year uh, experienced animal scientist and, and now farm manager. We have uh, a business manager, a business services manager who uh, looks after all our, well, all our business services. We have a livestock and grazing manager who is a vet. Uh, she has around 10 years experience in uh, animal health principally in sheep, animal health. And then uh, the, the operations team are around uh, six or seven people on ground. There are six experienced Australian uh, uh, farmhands from, uh, from the sheep industry. And in addition to that, we have recently brought a New, uh, a, a New Zealand Australian farmhand in to join the team. We're trying to get uh, more New Zealand day-to-day -day understanding in our operations. We are ruminant grazers. We, we, are, gro we are grass growers who, who use ruminants to commercialise that grass. Our base business is grass. Most of our thought processes go into grass and how we eat it, how we, how we grow it and how we eat it. The, the ruminant we choose, we have chosen, is sheep. There are, it's technically possible we could have chosen a, a different ruminant, but it's not a sheep farm, it's a grass farm that uses sheep. So we do two things. We maximise the amount of grass we grow and then we measure to, mac, to maximise the amount of grass we eat. That then gives us, and then in the livestock end, we seek to maximise the conversion rate or minimise the conversion rate of that grass into, into carcass. A general strategy is minimum inputs. Only on our irrigated areas do we apply nitrogen. In a big sense, we're minimum input. Clearly, we are exporting carcasses, so we're exporting phosphorus, sulphur, potassium, etc., with every load that goes out. Uh, so we, 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 we do apply uh, artificial fertilisers to replace phosphorus, potassium, sulphur, etc., but not nitrogen. We... Uh, grow a mixed pasture uh, and we, we grow a mixed, most of our pastures are mixed pastures with uh, clover for nitrogen. So minimum, in, in the New Zealand sense, we are minimum input. We maximise grass growth by ensuring that all of our pastures spend at least 11 months a year resting and only one month a year being grazed. We, we have weed control to establish pastures. It is our goal, and we're showing some success on grazing systems. We're showing a lot of success in using grazing systems to control weeds. All of our grazing areas are 
broken into 12 by electric fencing, New Zealand style electric fencing. And we rotate our, our mobs around those, those cells so that one area is, any one area is only being grazed for one twelfth of the year, rested for 11 twelfths of the year. And when, when grazed, the, the grazing density is high enough that everything, almost everything in the, on that pasture is eaten. Weeds no longer get a competitive advantage over pasture because we keep the stocking density during grazing high enough that the competition for feed is there and the animal eats the weed. We, uh, we, we believe we'll, it is a, certainly a long-term goal to get to a position where we won't be doing any, uh, any weed control. It will take us some time to get there, but in some areas, we're certainly getting moving down that road. On our dry land areas, we have divided everything into 70 to 100 hectares, then redivided that into 12. So five to, five to eight hectare cells. We have five to eight hectare dry land cells at the moment. Every cell has a water point. Uh, in at lambing, we have low, we, we would have uh, as little as one to 200 ewes in that area. In summer, autumn, we could have as high as 3,000. As we, depending what, depending what our goal at the time is, if it's pasture cleanup, we go in with very high density. If it's lambing, we go with as low a density as we can. In areas where we've been grazing for, for maximum, we've been grazing these areas in this system for eight years. Uh, what is clear is we're building soil carbon. With permanent, well, by the way, everything we have is, everything we're moving towards is permanent pasture. So we, when we take a new, when we start on a new block, we take time to get weeds and road grasses out by at the moment we've got we've got a, a thousand acres where we're um, where we're cropping it to cereal every year and we crop it to cereal we graze it we spray it out we plant it to cereal again we crop it we graze it we spray it out and the idea is that we try and remove all the, all the weeds after that's been done we then come and plant a permanent pasture and we would hope to run that well for a long period. We'd hope to run it in, in indefinitely. Uh, we haven't yet proven we can do that, but we've certainly proven that we can run them for, for, for more than seven years. And then running that system, well, we're getting an awful lot of benefits. The first thing is we're getting a continual, we're getting a continually, we're getting nutrient left where it's eaten. The animal urine, the animal manure are all being dropped where the grass is eaten. We don't, offer, we don't offer to the animals the opportunity to go to a regular camping spot and deposit their manure in a different location. It's all, it's all very important that the manure load is dropped where it's grazed. That's probably maybe the most important thing that's happening. And then we're, 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 we've got long-term pastures building long-term root, root systems, uh, uh, which are building up soil carbon uh, anecdotally, we can see that our soil carbons have risen around about 0.8% over 0.7, over 10 years. From our initial work calculating dry grass growth or dry matter grass growth, uh, we would think we're 
on pastures where we've been rotationally grazing for seven years, we're, we're growing about 20% more dry matter, most probably through the uh, uh, build-up of soil carbon and soil carbon holding, I think it's true to say that a, a kilo of carbon retains 30 litres of water. So every every tonne of uh, every tonne of carbon we retain in the soil holds uh, uh, 30 tonnes of water. So, uh, and that, of course, prolongs growth further into the dry season than you would get otherwise. So we see more grass growing. We, we see the soil carbon building up and we have our, our manure load being dis evenly distributed across pasture. And as a result, we're now reducing, but because we have our manure load spread evenly across pasture, when it rains, the nutrient loss is a, is a lot less than if all of that is concentrated in one place. So we're seeing much better retention of nutrient. And as a result, we've now started to reduce our uh, our fertiliser applications because our phosphorus and potassium levels are now have now risen, in fact, too far. Uh, we, we, up till date, we've been putting on it, we have doubled the stocking rate and kept a traditional fertiliser application rate. Now we, we've, we are dramatically reducing our fertiliser application rate per head of output because our phosphorus and potassium levels were rising too fast. And that is all simply because we've reduced uh, nutrient loss. When you go to cell grazing, remember that if we have a 12 cell system, if we sacrifice one of those 12 to feed, when we come back to grazing pasture, that cell will be the last one we come back to graze. So in between being used for sacrifice and, and being grazed, it will get the longest recovery period. If, if for instance, we're on a three-day rotation, then it won't be grazed until the 34th day of the grazing. So it gets 34 days of growth before, it's, before it comes back. So while, yes, sacrifice in a traditional sense can be quite uh, debilitating. In a cell grazing system, uh, it, it is a lot less profound and because of the recovery period you're allowing. Clearly it depends on soil type, clearly it depends on rainfall, clearly it depends on a whole series of things. Sheep are different to cattle and, and so forth. But, um, and it depends whether you're sacrificing in a dry period or a wet period. We sell a, uh, significant proportion of our of our lambs to, to uh, lamb fattening operations. We, we often, for a significant portion, 30, 50% of our lambs, we don't take through to finished product. But at the moment, no, we just, we, we're selling into the, uh, into the bulk meat markets and uh, particular, a lot of ours, a lot of our finished product goes into the, uh, in, into the Australian supermarket, uh, in, in, into Australian supermarkets. I think there is a, a growing recognition of the of the difference between grain-fed and grass-fed livestock, um, how it can, yeah, and what people are prepared to, at the end of the day, pay for it. Um, it does seem to me that it's a, uh, that it is a market that we've got to better understand and work out how we're going to, uh, how, how we're going to be part of that. One of, one of the things I'd like to put in would be 
Um, Lock Maria has a very strong safety focus. We we uh, we consider and we value safety as the highest our highest business priority. And we we've been working for 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 eight years to to improve our safety performance, improve our safety culture, and drive into our team to develop to cult to to nurture in our team a feeling that they're important and the highest priority is that they go home at night injury-free. Without good safety culture, you can't be productive. It's, it is those two things are absolutely parallel. If you have someone who looks out for themselves and their team members, they think and they look out for the farm. If, if they don't think it's important to look after themselves and they don't think it's important to look after their team members, Almost by definition, they don't think it's important to, to look after the operation. I, I have not seen, in my 45 years of working, I, ha I have never seen an uh, a, uh, exception to that. Safe operations become high-performing operations. Unsafe operations are never going to be high-performing. But, you know, safety is obviously the biggest. We are, we are seeking to be... Uh, to improve the environment we're on. We, we have a long-term program to revegetate 5% of our land holding. We are eight years down that track now. We have well, some number like 40 hectares of revegetation underway. We're just about to embark on another 30. You know, it, it, it's, it's a huge, it's a very big commitment from the company's making, but it, it is parallel to our safety commitment. We, we, we are determined that we're here for the long term. The company's here in the long term. It has to improve the environment from what from what's been done in the past, and it it takes uh, it takes effort, commitment, focus, money, all the sorts of things you think about. Over the next three years, as we double our flock, um, there will be issues that come up with it. Um, and uh, but you know we'll uh, we, we we address those one by one. But yeah, it's it's you might describe it as putting a uh, traditional business approach to, to agriculture, livestock agriculture. And more, more probably, I, I should go back on what I said, is putting a traditional business approach to uh, grass farming. If, if a traditional grazer was to ask me the three questions I, I would think they should think about, um, I, would give, I would give them a statement that, what you measure, what you don't measure, you don't manage. If you don't measure something, then you don't know whether you're performing or not performing. Against that background, I'd ask them how much grass they grew last year, how much grass they ate last year, and what was their carcass conversion rate. They are the, they are the three numbers that everyone should have on the tip of their tongue. They should know what their conversion rate was last year, how much grass they grew, and how much of it they ate. If they can answer those, then they know the year after, where, where they've got to drive that number. Our grass, our grass curve can be, can vary by, well, it, it can be twice as high in a good year, more than twice as high in a good year, like anywhere. So we've got to work out how we get through that. We call that the P5 year, the year that, the, the year that only has a 5% chance of occurring. How, or P5, P10 year, how, how are you going to, how, how are you going to survive that year? Then you know what a, uh, and how, how are you going to survive the? I got that around the wrong the wrong way, but you, know, you can work everything off an average year, a P50 year. But when the um, 
when you get down to the low performance years, how you're going to how you're going to perform, how you're going to survive, and when you get to a high grass year, uh, how you're going to how you're going to put that away for the future. It's not it's not a matter of not a matter of lamenting weather problems. Weather problems come every day, every month, every year. It's a matter of knowing how you're going to manage weather events when they come. Because sure, as sure as eggs, they are going to come. Rain forecasts are exactly that. They're forecasts that they're right or wrong. And, uh, you know, stability is obviously good. If we knew the future, we'd all be rich. Um, but yeah, how are we going to how are we going to live those is 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 what is what gra- grass farming's about. Thank you so much, Bruce, for sharing your time with us and letting us benefit from your super interesting viewpoints. And if you, dear listener, are looking for new ways to see your own regenerative livestock feeding game, visit Hustler Equipment at hustlerequipment.com. And to see all the sustainable and regenerative farming articles in the Feed Grass for Good blog, you can go to hustlerequipment.com FGFG. Finally, if you liked this episode, please smash those five stars and give us a glowing review. It will help other people interested in sustainable and regenerative farming find us. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.